0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hello and welcome to Zero Ducks Given with me, Toby Tarrant, Daniel Norcross and Stephen Finn as well. Um, Finney, why don't you tell us all where you are at the moment? What are you doing right now?
0: I, well, I'm currently lying on my bed in the Hilton in um, at Old Trafford. I've got the pleasure of playing a second team game this week here, and we we had the first day today. And my room literally looks out onto the pitch, so I oh. get to wake up in the morning, open my curtains, and look straight out onto my place of work, which so, is an absolute what,
1: pleasure. What, what, what room number, I finished? I was, I was in that bubble last year, and I and I got quite, I, f- I fell slightly in love with that hotel in its so own yeah. strange way.
0: I don't really want to tempt fate and find out that I was in I'm in the same room that you were because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be going around touching things with extreme caution.
1: It
2: looks a thought. lot like the one I was in, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I about well, Finney, mate, in theory, you could sneak out if you can see the pitch from your window, you could sneak out onto the pitch right now and just go and uh, and just go and scuff up a huge mark on a length where you're gonna to bowl tomorrow and uh do your figures at absolute surface. Get yourself back into the first team.
0: That's it. Well, I, what did I bowl? 11 overs for 25 today. It was an attritional day's cricket. And uh, the wicket's pretty slow. I think we bowled 50 overs and they're about 120 or 130 for two. So it's been, uh, been a bit of a slog so far. So I'm booking myself in for a few more overs tomorrow.
1: Hey, look, <laughs> look at least you've got 50 overs in. If you've been down here... The downpours we had were absolutely sensitive. I've never seen
2: anything like the hailstorm in Clapham earlier. Mm -hmm. Dan's just down the road from me. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it.
1: Honestly, they were were hailstones the size of relatively small peas. It was was really (laughs) almost spectacular.
2: It was almost spectacular. It was. (laughs) Finny, when you're playing in the twos, like some of the oppo, do they get out like one of those miniature cricket bats for you to sign? Because some of those youngsters, you're Ashley's winning Stephen Finn. You're that guy that got 50 against New Zealand.
0: No, they just take great pleasure in trying to lash me everywhere, I think. <laughs> so, that's what seems to happen. They, um, no, we're actually we're playing like in the Middlesex team today. There's a lad who's only just turned 16, and I think he was born in 2004. Oh, and I, awful. um, yeah, was, he's was born in two thousand and four, and I made my first class debut in two thousand and five. So wow, that's you know, I was terrified. Sort of sat there in the dressing room, looking around, thinking, "Christ, I'm finally that old man." Sat <laughs> in the dressing room. Daniel that's Norcross
1: me. has got hemorrhoids older than him. I have actually. Yeah. <laughs> one, one called Bob, and one called June, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we're off. If you're new to Zero Ducks Given and you, you were tuning in for a cricket podcast, uh, you found the level. We've, we've set our stool out early. Now, <laughs> now, speaking of Finney walking out onto the pitch and tampering a bit, which was, of course, a, a very, a very silly joke. Let's talk about good old fashioned cheating in the game of cricket and sandpaper gate, which, you know, was starting to die out a little bit. You thought it had gone away, reared its ugly, ugly head once again this week. So let me explain. If you haven't seen this, Cameron Bancroft, who was the one that was caught with sandpaper on that fateful day against South Africa many years ago and served his his year ban from cricket. He did an interview in The Guardian this week talking about the fact that he's excited for a cricket season ahead with Durham. And obviously, Sandpapergate featured in this interview. And he was sort of pressed on whether anybody else knew about the sandpaper other than him, Steve Smith and David Warner, who all served bans and all who took the blame for it at the time and who Cricket Australia's investigation decided were responsible. And he was asked whether anybody else in the team knew about it. And he said it's pretty probably self-explanatory that the bowlers knew about it. And obviously that was a shocking revelation. Uh, Michael Clark, ex-Australia captain, came out and said that he believes that more than just the three players knew about the incident. He said the players hold that ball at the top of their mark. They look at it, they inspect it, they notice it. He said, sportsmen know their equipment. He said, I can tell you now, if you went and grabbed a pen, just a pen, and put a little one somewhere on my cricket bat, on top of the handle, on the edge of the bat, on the toe of the bat, on the face, under the grip, anywhere, just a little number one, I would have noticed. If you are playing sport at the highest level, you know your tools. Adam Gilchrist as well said, eventually, I think the names will be named. I think there are some people... Have it stored away and are ready to pull the trigger when the time is right. It's fascinating. First of all, I want to come to you with that, Finney. Would you notice? Would, would, do, you must look at the ball in between every single delivery, man. I watch the way that Stuart Broad places his fingers so carefully on the scene before every delivery. Surely, you've 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 held enough cricket balls, you've seen enough cricket balls that you would notice blemishes and marks that are that are unusual to you.
0: Well, yeah, you do. So I I make sure that I hold the same part of the ball every time. I have my my middle finger on the uh, on the cross of the seam, um, on the corner. See, like like where the leather splits in the middle. I use that, and then the seam as like a gripping point for it. So yeah, you you do notice things that go on with the ball, but again, I it's such a hard thing. It's, it's speculation, isn't it, at the moment, as to what actually happened. And, yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting development that Bancroft has felt as though, um, or has said that in an interview, which feels pretty
2: significant, doesn't it, I think. And 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 Dan, there was rumours at the time, I remember when it all happened, one of the big, the big question was, was this the first time they've done it? Now, call me a cynic here, and, uh, and, it, it, seems, it seems unlikely to me that the very first time they attempted this, they got caught immediately. That's, uh, maybe that's me being cynical. And there was rumours at the time that England, who had just lost an Ashes series to this very Australia team, the England bowlers were amazed at how much the Australians were making it swing and how early they were making it reverse swing as well. And they were shocked by it. Now, if Jimmy Anderson can't swing a cricket ball, then, then surely nobody can. We would have lost that Ashes series, by the way, no matter what ball was used. Uh, They they could have openly sandpapered one side and it wouldn't have made any difference. They could have given us all the sandpaper in the world. We wouldn't have won that Asher series. It did not change the outcome of the series, I do not believe. But in, in your honest opinion, Daniel, and I'm just going to outright ask the big question, do you think that the bowlers knew about it? And do you think that that was the first time they did it in South Africa?
1: I don't think it was the first time they did it in South Africa. I would be very surprised if the bowlers didn't know about it. Jeff Leban wrote a fantastic book called Steve Smith's Men. It's a fabulous book for many reasons, not least because the very front page of it, Steve Smith's Men is written in a sandpaper font. And when you rub your hand over it, it's all rough. He took to Twitter today because it was uh, partly an opportunity to sell more copies of Steve Smith's Men. Remind <laughs> people a great book it was. And good luck to uh, him. But You've just sold absolutely. a few there as well. well I hope you're getting in commissioned. It's a very, very good book. i am extensively uh, quoted in it, so I'm very happy for it to sell more books. Uh, but in it, he talks about how the investigation into, into Sam Gate was not exactly necessarily halted, but they just didn't bother talking to all the players. So one of the reasons we don't know whether the bowlers knew is because the people who were who were talked to were Darren Lehman and David Saker and the three players who ultimately got banned, Smith, Warner, Bancroft. So there's always been a kind of, well, hang on a minute, what, what did all the others know? And it was, let's get this out. The feeling was, we've got three scapegoats, let's, let's hang them out to dry, and then that's done and dusted. So, no, I mean, my, my suspicion is not that. While I was out there commentating in that Ashley series, 2017-18, I was on air with Glenn McGrath at one point, and it was a first test at Brisbane, and um, David Warner was standing at mid-off. And he had extensive plasters on all of his knuckles, the joints, not not the knuckle, but you know, the the joint that flexes on the finger, the first one up, the first sort of like knuckly bit. And I said, isn't it strange that David Warner, one of Australia's best fielders, is standing at mid-off to Glenn McGrath. And I said, uh, seems an odd place for him to be. Can I just art. ask
2: at this point, as in because you had suspicions or you were just genuinely asking the question? Well, to start
1: with, I, just, I was just genuinely asking questions because we haven't, This was the first test of the series, so mm. we hadn't really been able to deduce what the ball was doing and whether more was happening with Australians bowling or English bowlers bowling. But I did think it was odd that he was there and I thought it was very odd that his hands were completely taped up and Glenn said quite recently, well, he's had a lot of trouble with his fingers, he'd broken a couple of fingers and they're probably trying to hide in there. Well, he stayed there for quite a long time and he stayed there with these plasters on and, and there could be a perfectly innocent explanation for that. It seems odd that David Warner was the person who showed Cameron Bancroft how to rough up a cricket ball and yet the first time they actually did do it was after David Warner had shown Cameron Bancroft how to do it because that would suggest that David had never done it himself at any point, which would seem a little bit odd. And it was true that the ball did do lot more for Australian bowlers, but that could have been down to skill. But there were definitely, there were suspicions among people in the press box that probably something was happening. The issue, though, that we largely have is that we're not quite sure what we think about ball tampering and whether we think it's actually that bad. The game, especially in Australia, is quite heavily geared towards the batter. You know, the pitches are pretty flat, the ball's not particularly responsive you can sort of understand why science will try to enhance the ball so that it can actually make for a better contest between bat and ball. And I don't think anybody in the game is really 100% sure about how they feel about the whole business of ball tampering. What this, though, is about is not about how you feel about ball tampering. It's how you feel about the investigation into the Australian team uh, and did it stop too early and how much did the bowlers know. And not because you want to hang the bowlers out to dry, I think it partly is because the sentences, if you like, that were conferred on Bankoff, Warner, and Smith were so draconian. I mean, they, Australia went mad. They had year bans, nine month bans for this because it sort of put the whole country in disrepute. You know, it was like a disaster for the whole country. And, um, and I think that because that was over the top, it then means that if you're going to ever get to the bottom of the story, there's have to be, if for example, you discover that the bowl is me. Do you have to have a retrospective punishment for them? I'm not sure. I guess, though, and I raised it with you when we were chatting away on WhatsApp, the amusing thing that comes out of this for me is the, the role of the fall guy. Because here, Cameron Bancroft has been basically set up as the fall guy. Now, fall guys are supposed to take the fall. They're not supposed to crop up three years later and say... Uh, well, you know, I mean, maybe uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, whatever that means. Self-explanatory would be you actually explaining it, mate. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not self-explanatory, but I think we know what he was implying. Yeah. And that's not really what a fool guy is supposed to do. Now, I don't know. To me, I'll ask Vinny this. I mean, you want to set up, make the perfect fool guy, you've got a problem, haven't you? Because a fool guy's got to be essentially stupid to be a fool guy but not so stupid as to then blab.
2: And, and <laughs>
1: We've got ourselves a bit of an issue with this ball guy, haven't we?
2: Well, I mean, so, I mean, I just want to, sorry, Finn, I'll come to you this out. I just want to say that uh, one thing I will take issue with, I guess, is as a cricket fan, that I would say that we do think ball tampering is, is a big deal. I, I think we've accepted for some time Sweets in the mouth, you know, little things like that. Finding a little extra. But bit why of do you
1: accept that? Why do you accept that? Why, why is something sand, I mean, about sandpaper? sandpaper
2: sand, it seems so extreme. Bad, it, was, yeah. it was. It was bringing something alien onto the pitch. That's so extreme. But
1: I, so is a minto isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's I alien. I
2: know. I, I I don't know. Maybe there's something about the the act of it is so brutal to scratch up one side of a beautiful, beautiful cricket ball. I don't, it's I don't his know what pants
1: it, is the problem. It was the fact that it came out of his pants. Is yeah. And, and,
2: and, and there was a theory that the reason they chose him was they realized the camera was always on Warner and Smith because they're big personalities and it was never on poor little Cameron Bancroft. Um, and one of the things we did discuss in, in, in the WhatsApp group earlier was that uh, the problem, the reason that Cameron Bancroft has, has blabbed is cricket Australia have got nothing to offer him. It's not like he served his time and, like Smith and Warner, has gone straight back into the Australia team. He's been pretty average since he came back. If he had just averaged, you know, 28 consistently, they'd be like, Do you know what, Cameron, that's enough runs. We'll put you in the first, put you back in the team. Don't tell anyone about what happened a few years ago. Be, be a good Cameron Bancroft. There you go. Sam. Just go on tour at
1: least, you know, pick, it, him up, pick, but, pick him for a tour.
2: Exactly. But now they've got these talented youngsters coming through at the top of the order and it doesn't look like there's much of a way back for Bancroft. But I want to ask Finney's opinion if you can cast your mind back to a few years ago because obviously all cricket fans are talking about it and no doubt all cricketers are talking about it so where were you when you saw the sandpaper thing when you heard about it and what was the reaction in in the Middlesex changing room and 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 with the fellow people that you play cricket with because Dan was quite flippant about the ball tampering thing there was there anger was there shock was there were you going, oh yeah, that doesn't surprise me, that sort of stuff happens. What was the reaction in the in the dressing room? And what was your personal reaction as well?
0: Oh, yeah, I'd say surprise is probably the reaction because I think it's accepted that like throwing the ball into the dirt to try and get one side roughed up from the boundary and things like that and bowling cross seamers is a legitimate way to Rough up one side of the ball, but I've never known it or experienced it where someone's taken something onto the pitch in order to do that job for you. So, yeah, I'd say surprise initially, Um, and then you know, it it got as much as like I I'm old now, so I don't really listen to music when I drive anymore. I listen to LBC and. It was one of the main topics for an hour, mate. I'm show. sat
2: right. I'm sat right fucking here. I do a no. da- I do a daily radio show. It's unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I I don't listen to that rubbish. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Nor does anyone. I've seen the ratings up against. I'm up against James <laughs> O'Brien. I get fucking murdered every week. <laughs> anyway, anyway, as you, as you were, Finney. listening to
0: listening to LBC, um, and and yeah, it, it was one of the main topics on that. And that's when you sort of realise that it sort of reached a wider audience than the cricket community because i think within the cricket community people have accepted that over the years there have been instances where people have like bent the rules and used gamesmanship to a point where it's too much and they've been pulled back in and said you can't do that but but yeah this had like touched a nerve with people in normal society so um yeah it it was it was Surprise. I was very surprised to, to see them doing that. Um, but then also I felt as though the punishments on the three guys who got caught were pretty extreme considering we've seen instances of people ball tampering before and, and it's just sort of, okay, a few match bands, and then move along. Yeah, this was something that felt a little bit more significant.
1: You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to rake over the, the whole thing again, but the, the reason why I may have sounded a bit flippant is because I'm, I'm old. And, you know, I remember stories of bottle tops going out onto the field Mm. of play in the 80s and 90s when the first thing was sort of first happening. And Michael Afton, who's who's an absolute, you know, lover of the game and a a great, great man, he did have dirt in his pocket.
2: yeah, And he did
1: rub it on the ball. And (laughs) it was seen on TV. Now, you know, the the reason why I just urge us all to be a little bit like, not, not relaxed, but a little bit more cautious about throwing the book at these three, like they did do, and then retrospectively perhaps going back and saying, well, if the bowlers knew, then maybe they need to get really enormous bands. It's because it is a complicated area in cricket that's been going on for quite a long time. Finney talked there about throwing the ball into the dirt as if that's legitimate, and you'll see umpires saying, oh, oh, you know, get, don't do that, keep it up. So that's a grey area, isn't it? And People are trying to exploit these grey areas. It's because we don't actually really 100% know how we feel about it. And that leaves this kind of void in which people allow their own feelings to come barging through. And I think actually the whole Sandpaper Gate thing was not really about that. It was what Lawrence Booth said in Wisdom. It was about the fact that the Australians, they they draw a line, and it's their line, and you don't cross that line. And there's a sort of sanctimony to this Mm. that drove everybody mad. And so when they were caught crossing over a line, then obviously everybody with glee piled in over the top and said, how can you possibly do that with a little bit of a smile in our voices because they'd been caught? And that was really the issue. It, you know, absolutely. Had the, Af- had the Afghan team been caught doing it, there would have not been anything like the same uproar because I, Afghans I completely don't agree. draw their sanctimonious bloody line.
2: Let's not mistake ourselves for a moment. The schadenfreude felt yeah. universally of the fact that it was a Australian team who played with a big ego who went hard at the opposition. It was the team that got caught. Well, let's be honest. We all rubbed our hands with glee and we loved sticking the knife in. Um, sport needs pantomime villains. We already didn't like that Australian team. We had an opportunity to, to really lay into them and, uh, and we took it with both hands. And then, you know, again, we don't want to go over the whole issue, but it led to booing the players at the world cup later on. And, uh, and, and, and you, you definitely could sense there was a feeling of, oh, I'm so pleased if, if, if anyone was going to get caught doing something like this, the Australians, yeah. it couldn't be more perfect. And this well, is from an English honest. point of view. We're three Englishmen sat here as well. So let's not lose sight of that. I mean, it no. was a, there was a huge element of shout and fraud. Of course it, there
1: was. Exactly. Let's be honest. We weren't really, really annoyed that the sanctity of the game had been destroyed, were we? We were really, really happy that the Australians had done it and been caught it's and very true. So you, we have to look into our own hearts and see exactly yeah. how strongly we really do feel about all these issues and be a bit more honest.
2: Now but now the question... I still
1: want to come back to the four guy though. I want to come back to the four guy but the thing is, right? When you when you try to construct a four guy, you've got to, what what qualities do you need? Because I think Cameron Bancroft is slightly missing some of those qualities and one of them is staying stubborn. Now I don't know. I mean it is partly like giving him maybe a a role at the top of the order every now and then, or just paying him off for 50 grand a year, Mm. something like that. I've I've never really believed in the four guys on TV. You know, like in Line of Duty, somebody goes into prison and then, you know, they suddenly get murdered by an inmate. Yeah, Because that that bloke is working for the the OCG. Right, yeah. yeah, Do they really exist? Because, I mean, that bloke's spending basically the rest of his life in prison. What does he get out of it?
2: Yeah, they but they look after their wife and kids on the outside, Dan. That's Is that the key. enough? That's, I'm not
1: sacrificing in, my life for my in wife the sopranos, and the no kids.
2: In the Sopranos, if you're doing a stretch, if you're doing a bit of time in prison, oh, look at the houses that they leave behind for their wives and children. That's the problem. Cricket Australia had nothing to offer their full guy because they couldn't put him in the team because they've got good, exciting youngsters coming through and Bancroft hasn't scored that many runs. And as a result, they lost him. They lost their full guy. Oh, we'll ask, gonna, do you know what
1: he's going to do? He's going to write another bloody letter to himself as well, isn't he? Because <laughs> this, this is something that, that Cameron Bancroft does whenever he whenever he struggles with something going a bit wrong in his life. He takes the positive from it and he does a bit of yoga and then writes a letter to himself from, from the future telling himself how he should feel now.
2: Right. I don't that know, is... Yeah. This new breed of Australian, where they all walk on the outfield with bare feet, I'm not. I'm not sure about this new. They they all date yoga instructors, and they all walk on the outfield with bare feet so that they can feel the earth between their toes. I, I like. I just miss the stories of Australians drinking 42 pints on a flight from London to Melbourne. Those are the Australians that I could get on. You know where you stand with that sort of Australian. I want my Australian with a mullet, a vest, flip flops, <laughs> sunburn. Boom. That's my. That's I, the, you know open where you stand. Chest. Open, open chest. chest drinking, you off. Drinking it, yeah, 4X. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Laying into you. At least you know where you stand with that Australian. Um, well, let's move on. Let's uh, let's move on to to the England team. Uh, the always well-behaved, never, never cheating, beautiful, beautiful, perfect English cricket team. Um, let's talk about actually some sad news to the English cricket team, that Jofra Archer is going to miss the New Zealand series. He's got more elbow issues. And... Look, we all love Joffre Archer. We all want him to be the superstar. That, I mean, he already is a superstar. He's one of the biggest names in world cricket. IPL player of the tournament. He's, he's a freak of nature. We all love watching him. It's really sad. I did see Simon Hughes put a tweet out saying that when he suffered elbow injuries, he was never able to bowl that quickly again. I was thinking, well, you were hardly Jofra Archer in the first mm. place, but the point the still stands. He really it's struggled. quite encouraging,
1: wasn't it, as well? You know, hi, Jofra. Yeah. yeah, I was never the same again. Thanks yeah, anyway,
2: anyway, good, anyway, good luck with the injury. Yeah, thanks, Simon. And it, let's be honest, you know, since he burst onto the scene with that frightening, genuinely terrifying spell at Lord's where he hit Smith, he hit Labashane. It was the fastest English bowling spell I'd seen in my lifetime. He was absolutely rapid. He's never quite hit those paces again. And he's never quite looked as in, um, as rapid as that ever again. And that would suggest that this this injury's been going on for a while. Finney, I mean, you've suffered your your fair few injuries in your time. I don't know enough about it. I honestly don't. Is, is Simon Hughes, is, is, is he being fair? Is he just being honest? Or do you think Joffre can, can get over this elbow trouble that's been troubling him for some time now?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, yours is about five foot two. There's not many... <laughs> There's not many natural attributes going for Simon Hughes <laughs> to make him a fast bowler. I'd yeah, say that, Joffre Archer's got a few more natural the, the, attributes. The elbow was the least of his worries, break. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd say yeah, it's legs that are one foot long. But, um that <laughs> is Yoss's problem. But the I mean coming back from injuries is difficult, and that's both psychological and physical because of the rehab and the work that you have to do, and then trusting your body to go out there and to let it loose and, and do its thing again is um is something that's actually a lot more difficult than it seems. I mean, I've it's took me a number of years to overcome my knee surgery that I had well, it's almost 4 years ago now. And it takes time to get over that and for your body to remember what it's like to be free of those niggles and that pain again. So, yeah, I don't envy Joffrey, you know, with the expectation unfortunately because he's done some great things in an England shirt and and in franchises and for Sussex and stuff that people expect him to bowl really quick all the time so therefore it's important that he's at 100% health when when he bowls in order for him to do that so yeah you've got to hope that whatever's going on can be sorted out because it would be a great shame for him you know and I've not seen him bowl I saw some balls that he did bowl this week and they look Rapid to me. I mean, I I was watching the feed of him bowling to Zach Crawley, and I thought, I don't fancy that. If I'm being brutally honest, (laughs) yeah. Um, So, so yeah. I, I mean, you'd, you'd have to wait until there's more information about what's actually going on to to then jump to conclusions and say that it might affect him in the future. You hope that there's a fix in there or a a fix that a surgeon may be able to see to to enable him to. To, you know, to retain that whip and to keep that whip because um, yeah it, it is important when you're bowling ninety or past now.
1: What I want to ask you is, Fiddy, th- there's been a history of bowlers having really long spells and really struggling after Andrew Fintoff bowled himself in a famously into the ground and then trying to win a game against Sri Lanka when Joffrey Archer first appeared in that series. I'm not having a go at Joe Root for this at all because it was an Ashes series. He wanted to get, he, he wanted to use Joffrey Arch because he was the most potent weapon he had. But he did use him in incredibly long spells, and Joffrey was very willing to do those long spells. And it produced that electrifying moment at Lords, as Toby's talked about, Smith, Shane, and what have you. But do you find that perhaps captains don't 100% understand fast bowlers? You know, like, you've got this weapon and you go, right, I want to use this and then you just like, you fling this fast bowler at the problem and you don't fully recognise that at the end of that, I mean, I think bottom are like 25 overs out of 35 at one end at one point. That's really, really hard to do, isn't it, for a fast bowler and is there a danger that we're just not really managing fast bowlers? You look at the way Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad have learned to manage themselves and they've kind of imparted that it seems to me to their captains and to their coaches and you know they're not going to bowl 14 over spells and be bowled into the ground they kind of know where their body Jofra was young come in he wanted to make a big impression he allowed this thing to happen to him that perhaps shouldn't have happened
0: Yeah well, I think it's a difficult scenario I'd say you have to play the situation that's put in front of you so therefore if you're the fast bowler and you're required to bowl those overs in a test match in an important test match then you know and the series is on the line and things like that then you're accepting as a fast bowler that you have to do that and that that's part of your job and, and you want to do that you know when you're in rhythm when you're bowling well you do just want to keep bowling um, and you want to make the most of it and do everything you can for the team I mean that and I, I actually didn't watch that Ashes series and think that he was mismanaged or anything. I, I thought it, that was OK. I mean, the one series that I was there watching live was the New Zealand series Away. And those wickets were turgid. They were you know, the sort of wickets that required someone to come in and bowl fast for three or four overs and then chill for a bit. And I think I remember Jofra in those test matches bowling some really long spells. And I think it's more more those scenarios there where the wicket's really really flat, and you've got this yeah you've got this amazing fast bowler that can bowl ninety odd miles an hour all day, and the temptation in those situations is to is to bowl in loads and loads. So yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily look at that Ashes series and say that he was mismanaged in that. But I think on reflection, if England were to go back to New Zealand in those situations, they may use Jofra in more of a um, more of an enforcer role in short bursts. And that's important. And I I think actually, sorry to interrupt, but I think that it's important that that's articulated to the bowler as well, because the captain says at the beginning of the day, right? Today, your role or your job is to just, whenever you get the ball, you've got three or four overs and I just want everything you've got in the tank for those three or four overs. And then you can go and graze in the outfield for an hour and a half. And I'll ask you to do it again in an hour and a half, And I think it's those conversations that allow bowlers to get their heads around what they need to do and what's required um, that can help in those situations as well.
1: I think we're going to have a very interesting scenario play out this summer and autumn and winter because England play India at home in a five-test series and India is the biggest powerhouse in world cricket. So ordinarily, you would think that England would try to manage their resources to win that five-test series above everything else. But they've also got a World T20, and they've got an Ashes. And so you've got this kind of, it seems to me, there's a danger, well, not a danger, but there'll be, it'll be interesting to see the push and pull in selection. Because Owen Morgan would love, and England would love, to be the holders of the 50-over World Cup and the T20 World Cup. I don't think any country's ever done that simultaneously. They've got a great opportunity to do that with a load of players who played in India. And Jofra Archer is key to that, of course, absolutely key. And then they've got Australia, where they feel that the pitches require a different kind of English bowling attack from the one that prospers in England. So in a sense, winning in England against India doesn't automatically tell them, they think, what the lineup of their pace bowling attack needs to be in Australia. So I wonder if we're going to see Joffre really managed quite gently over the course of this summer with a view to keeping him available for series that are kind of tailored for him and maybe that horses for courses thing bowlers often come in for the horses for courses thing when I was a kid back in the 90s we would go and pick Steve Watkin and Neil Malander to play at Headingly because it was seen as sort of grey and it would lead classic English nibbly bowlers you know bowling 78 miles an hour Darren Stevens would have probably got a cap in the early 1990s under that selection regime <laughs> I wonder if we're going to see a bit of that over the course of this summer, England have got plenty of bowlers that can do a job. They've got Ollie Robinson, they've got Ollie Stone, they've got obviously Broad and Anderson who have been managed to play only red ball cricket. So there's plenty of bowlers there. Chris Wokes, not even mentioned him, Ben Stokes have come back into contention. So it may be that. We might not see much of Joffrey this this summer because that won't be the priority.
2: I, I should point out as well at the time of recording, it's it's Monday night. So we, we haven't seen the squad announced for New Zealand, but I certainly expect to see the likes of Ollie Robinson in there, maybe uh, Craig Overton. I think we need to go full Kemar Roach on some players at a young age. See, what West Indies did very smartly with Kemar Roach was they realised this guy's really good. If we play him in loads of white ball cricket, he will end up going like all our other good players and playing IPL and BBL and we'll never see him again. So let's not even put him in the shop window for white ball cricket. Let's just play him in tests, not pick him for the ODIs in the 2020s, so that he can show our good is and get a big contract in the IPL. And I think that's the way that we're going to save test cricket in this country. Just don't give them a chance to show what they can do in white ball cricket, and just be, just keep going. No, no, trust me. you're No, trust me. You're a test player. You're a test player, Jofra. Trust me. That's the only way we're gonna uh, we're gonna <laughs> save test cricket. Here's a tough question, right? But hand on heart, and like I say, we all love Jofra Archer. But when Joffre Archer and he and hasn't bowled rapid, quick for quite some time in the England team, and sometimes when he's not bowling at his absolute full pelt, he doesn't look that threatening because he's he, he doesn't always. Get this—he certainly doesn't move it as much as Jimmy. Probably doesn't nibble it around as much as Stuart Broad does early on. So, forget conditions, forget all of that. There's four seamer spots available. Anderson and Broad have two of them. Let's be honest. Stokes has probably got the other one. If Jofra Archer isn't bowling ninety miles an hour plus, is he the fourth seamer, the best seamer for England, or is it, you know, is it Mark Wood, is it Sam Curran, is it Ollie Robinson, is it Craig Overton? Is it Chris Wokes? Is he, if you had to give an answer, if he's not bowling 90 miles an hour, is he England's fourth best seamer? Go on, Daniel Norcross. Give me, give me an answer. No sitting on the fence. Give me an answer.
1: Toby, they're such fragile beasts, these quick bowlers. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work like that. They, 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 they're not like Fred Truman these days. They're all these sort of like slightly wet young kids and they, they can't bowl more than a couple of test matches before something goes wrong. So you, you actually have to have like eight of them up your sleeve. It's like it's like managing a it's like, it's like being a Manchester United manager, like being Oli and Solto at the moment, trying to manage four games in seven days or whatever madness it's, it's, it is. It's
2: a team of Paul Pogbers, these fast it, bowlers, isn't it? It sort
1: of is. But I do think that actually, you know, I think in England it's easier. I don't know what Finney thinks about this. I think in England it's easier for England to manage their resources because Anderson Broad <laughs> wokes. Stokes, and then Ollie Stone, Mark Wood, gives you pretty much every base covered in English conditions. Their problem comes with a kookaburra ball Mm. in Australia, where Anderson bowled brilliantly there last time, 2017-18, the Australians just decided to to play him out. He went at like two and over, because they thought, well, he's the big threat. And then other guys came on, and they struggled to make the kookaburra ball do much on those glassy surfaces that are rock hard, and they team. when you tap your bat on them, they make the noise like flicking a champagne flute. It's it's terrifying. and uh, For a, a classic English bowler like Chris Wokes, and to a degree, Stuart Broad, you know, um, and, and Stokes, it, it's difficult. So that's where I think they need Archer big time. And they might need Ollie Stone. I don't know what, what Finney thinks about this, but, you know, he played an Ashley's winning side and they, they packed it with Tremors and mm. Finney and these big tall buggers who are banging it into the wicket. And then Brez came through, didn't he, uh, at the back end of that series, really, really successfully. So I don't know if it's a theory that's the right theory, but it's the theory that they go with.
2: Finney, do we just have to accept now as cricket fans in the modern day that the game has changed? We are never going to see the, the... like When I grew up, it was your best 11 played every single test match. Do we just need to accept that that is a thing of the past now, that modern day cricket is going to be about rotation, about using the whole squad and about rotating your bowlers. Is, is, that's just the future now, is it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of the technological advances that we've seen in the game are great for it in terms of literally every single ball is recorded and measured, speed guns, how far it's moved, what it's done, where it's delivered from, everything. Is measured, which means that there's no hiding place. So that in the past, when we were young and and you know you've got the the chip shop speed gun there that that isn't accurate and stuff in the bottom corner of the screen, like it, you can bowl a spell at eighty one miles an hour and it's and it's like oh well the speed gun's a bit off today. You know this isn't this isn't working today. Something. And there's a and so there's not excuses, but there's like there was somewhere to hide. Whereas now with the amount of analysis and data and scrutiny that there is on cricket, especially international cricket, everything has to be at a hundred percent. And if you can't perform your skill at a hundred percent, then they'll get someone else in who can. And that, and it's as simple as that. I think, I think that it's the levels of scrutiny that mean that, you know, when and good old Fred Truman you know, I know everyone loves to think that he rolled 100 miles an hour all day, every day, without <laughs> fail. I'm here to tell you he didn't. I'm sorry, all you all you mad cricket fans who are 90 years old listening to this in Lithuania. Um, he, he didn't. He didn't, unfortunately, because the wickets were uncovered. It's just, it's impossible. It cannot have happened. So, yeah. so, therefore, yeah, now that's why rest and rotation and stuff is important now because it's so important to have everyone firing and fit and firing at 100% all the time. But I, I would add, sorry, to, on top of that, is that I, I see Jofra Archer as being paramount to England being successful in Australia. Um, his style of bowling, the height with which he bowls it from, the shape that he has on the ball, his ability to bowl reverse swing with the angle of his seam and stuff like that, I think, is going to be absolutely paramount to England winning in Australia. And I think that will be their priority.
1: I just want to back out something what Finney was saying there. It's not just about speed. I mean, there's one very, very interesting tweet put out today by a guy called HyperCourse, who follows women's cricket a lot, who is of the opinion that Shabnim Ishmael bowls at least as quickly as Harold Lowell would, did, that we have the kind of like misty idea of these things. And the other thing to say is that there's a reason why Jimmy Anderson. Glenn McGrath, uh, Kapil Dev are amazing bowlers. Courtney Walsh, because the number of wickets they took, it's a number of games they played. And we think about that West Indies side that dominated cricket for 15 years, but actually it was Ambrose and Walsh who had longevity. The likes of Malcolm, Malcolm Marshall, to a degree, did, but you know he was. Out but he, of had to his he had to change his bowling
2: style. He had to. He slowed down a lot as he went he on. He did
1: it, uh, yeah. absolutely, and then you look at Holding and Roberts and Croft and Garner. And they didn't take 300 wickets because, not because they were being dropped so much, although they probably were being, because their bodies weren't up to the rigors of continuing to bowl fast, that kind of fast that was being required when there were other options. You know. So it's been forever thus. You look at Bob Willis and his knees. You look at Ian Botham, completely lost all his pace pretty much after he'd taken 200 wickets and his last 150 took forever to come. People like McGrath, people like Anderson, and Walsh and Ambrose are freaks that could take that many wickets and keep on bowling. Dale Stain, we thought that he would be the ultimate freak. And he's probably had to, really had to pack up red ball cricket five years before someone like Jimmy because it, it takes it out of you bowling express pace, doesn't it? So, you know, we've got to manage our expectations about what is going to be able to do in red ball cricket. You've got to understand it's highly unlikely that he's going to be playing 100 test matches because it takes it out of your body. And then you've got to be like delighted to look around that in England at the moment, we've got a bunch of fast bowling options, more than we've had for quite some time.
2: Um, lads, we are pretty much done, but uh, I want oh. to quickly rattle through the county championship. And I just want to give a mention to Chris Rushworth, who took has now taken 528 wickets for Durham, More than Graham Onions, which is an unbelievable achievement for a bloke who was released as a youngster. And uh, we talked about English conditions, horses for courses. I mean, this man was built to play four-day county cricket at the start and end of the season. Uh, Unbelievable performer for Durham over the years. Uh, Other mentions, Joe Root looks a million dollars at the minute. He's scoring runs. He got out on 99. And nice to see Dan Lawrence, who had an up-and-down winter with England but doing really well. Scored 152 as well. And Simon Harmer's just a freak. I mean, he is just the absolute dream county player. Takes ridiculous amounts of wickets. uh, Scores useful runs in the lower order as well. So I've got to give him a mention. Daniel, you want to talk about weather. You've been desperate to talk about weather. (laughs) Sum up the start of the county season's weather in a minute.
1: Richard Dixon's my man. Cat Insight. Follow him on Twitter. Izzy Westbury put out there. This is... Unbelievably cold. Why is it so cold? Is it always the way that it's hotter the week before the start of the counter championship? This set Richard Dixon on a road to magnificent glory. I'm going to be giving you more of his charts as the days go by. My main takeout for today is that the hottest day in spring, spring classified as March, beginning of March to the end of May, so far took place on the 30th of March. Right, and the weather forecast is terrible for the next two weeks. This will be the first time since 1979 that the hottest spring day will be the 30th of March. We often complain about the weather. This year we have every reason to. It is diabolical. It is freezing cold. There has been no pleasure to be derived from going and watching cricket, apart from the fact that we are watching cricket if you're lucky enough to get to watch cricket. Judging from Finney's expression when we saw him when we started this Zoom call, he's not enjoying having to play cricket. It is brutal out there. It's not. This isn't about rain. This is about cold. I mean, the next few weeks will be about rain. And over the course of the next few weeks, I will be bringing you some of the most fantastic research from Mr Richard Dixon, including where you should play each Test match at what time of year, uh, incredible takeouts on that are that headingly, the headingly test should always take place in the middle of September. Who you can't knew? you
2: can't tease future episodes of the podcast no. and then go immediately into the material. Well,
1: <laughs> not, it's not the whole material, it's just little <laughs> bits of it. And 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 a major takeout, and I think it's the most important takeout of the lot, is if you had one ground to play all your test cricket at in England for the rest of eternity, it's so obviously is the oval, it's the driest, it's the sunniest. It, it shits on Lords. Apparently, North London is notably wetter than South London. It's, it's impossible. They're about so, eight miles away. <laughs> given that we are, well, you'd think that, but apparently it's the, it's the weird effect of the Thames. So, as we embark, we are on the eve of the payback derby at the Oval on Thursday, whether God's willing. I just want to put in a little word there for the People's Ground, the Oval, the driest, the best, the most hospitable cricket ground in England.
2: Well, Finney, before we started recording, you said you were really tired, and uh, now you're going to sleep like a baby after that from Daniel. So, so
0: I can't wait for Sal to cut that and put that on the editing room floor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, chaps, I'll leave it there, but lovely to see you both. Finney, Bowell well tomorrow on that horrible pudding, and, uh, and see you next week, chaps. Bye. Cheers.